Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. When companies frack for shale oil and gas, they drill until the well stops producing and then move on. More or less the same goes for other primary industries like strip mining, logging, and fishing, where, roughly put, we extract the resources, abandon site, and move on. I'm Clara Young, and I'm talking to Anna Tsing, who's a professor of anthropology at the University of California in Santa Cruz. She's also the author of The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins. She takes the Matsutake mushroom and traces its supply chain from the forests of Oregon and Yunnan to Japan, where it is a rare and expensive autumn delicacy. We'll be talking about what the global Matsutake trade can teach us about ecology and market capitalism. Thanks for joining me, Anna. Thank you. So the common name for the Matsutake is pine mushroom, right? That's right. At least in some places in the United States, it's called pine mushroom because it always grows with pines. Right. And uh, just to give us an idea, what does it taste and smell like? What's so special about it? The mushroom is special because of its smell more than its taste. And it has a very distinctive smell. And some people think the smell is terrible and others think it's beautiful. Right. But what do you think? I moved from having being quite disturbed by the smell to loving it. So now I love it. But I should say that one uh, American mycologist who perhaps has some of the sensitivities of Americans described it as a provocative juxtaposition between red hots, that's a cinnamon candy, and dirty socks. Okay. I think I get an idea (laughs) of what that could smell like. And how much is an average size mushroom worth? Well, it completely depends that uh, the buyers are very interested in the provenance of the mushroom, so and the smell of the mushroom, the freshness of the mushroom. So the most expensive mushrooms could be quite expensive. I've seen them on sale relatively recently for 150 U.S. dollars for one mushroom in Japan. Mm. Uh, And the very first mushroom of the season, which is a very special mushroom that goes for highest prices, went for 4,000 U.S. dollars last year. I see. Now, um, why did you settle on this mushroom as the commodity through which to tell the story of modern capitalism? I was looking for a commodity that hadn't been so regularized by the trade that you could still see the kinds of cultural friction that went on at different parts of the commodity chain. And when someone told me about Matsutake, I was amazed, but even didn't appreciate the Uh, strange and wonderfulness of the commodity chain until I was in the middle of the research, until I saw for myself how at many points in the chain there are deep misunderstandings about why people like the mushroom, what's going on about this mushroom, at the same time as huge excitement at every part of the chain. So it had this combination of very different worlds and the thrill of bringing it across those worlds. Now, geographically, what are the main parts of the chain that all eventually lead to Japan? Where are they mostly found? Well, while the mushroom is really valuable, mainly in Japan, it turns out that it's found in much of the Northern Hemisphere. But it's a mushroom that never grows by itself. 
no one succeeded in growing it in a greenhouse or even in a laboratory. Okay. Uh, so it always grows in forests with the roots of trees. So when I say around the Northern Hemisphere, it's only in places particularly where there's pine trees, although it will also grow with some other kinds of trees. And uh, the Matsutake mushrooms were the first living things to grow in Hiroshima after the atomic bomb, right? Well, that is a common story that's oh. told. And I was told by at least one researcher that there had been Japanese newspaper articles about this, but I never found those myself. So I heard that story from many people in China and Japan, but I was never able to verify it. But of course it makes sense because uh, the timing of the bomb, which was I think in late August, and the mushrooms are coming out at the end of August, the beginning of September, and if there were any pine trees where the roots were still living, mm. the matsutake would have come up. There's a connection between what you call ruin or human disturbance and the mushroom itself. What is that connection? There's a number of ways of understanding the connections. The people who told me the story about Hiroshima were trying to argue that this mushroom to them symbolized a kind of perseverance and strength, an ability to grow in adversity uh, that they hoped might make those who consume this mushroom strong also. But for me, as a researcher, when I realized that this mushroom grows in kinds of forests that are not pristine, beautiful wilderness, but often quite intensively disturbed by logging, by farming, by all kinds of things that humans do, as well as um, natural disasters such as volcanoes, mudslides, the blowing of sand, that this is a mushroom that does well in what we think of as rather adverse conditions. So in that sense, the mushroom came to me to be a way to tell stories about kinds of organisms that are able to continue despite many kinds of troubles coming their way. Okay, so we're definitely going to be coming back to okay. that question at the okay. end of the interview when we talk right. about climate change. But what happened to the mushroom supply in Japan that the Japanese mm -hmm. started importing elsewhere? It took me by surprise as an American um, that to hear this story because it, it reverses many of the valences that Americans think of when we think about what goes wrong. But from the Japanese point of view, village forests stopped being used as village forests at the end of World War II. The reason is fossil fuels became cheap. People began to heat with fossil fuels. Uh, they didn't need firewood, and, they, and kerosene came in instead of charcoal. And then many people moved to the city, and the rural areas were depopulated. Older people lived there who did less work in maintaining the farms and forests. Village forests were abandoned, and in this abandonment, a new kind of tree grew up, uh, evergreen um Oaks grew up where deciduous oaks had grown before, and pine trees were smothered, um, as well as a new imported pest coming in, and especially under these difficult environmental conditions. Pine trees died, and when the pine trees died, the matsutake, which was a companion of pine, died too. Mm -hmm. 
it was only by the 1970s that this became evident that the dying of the pine trees due in part to the abandonment of village forests became clear and Matsutake from something that was quite easy to find in village forests became something very rare. And just at that time, in the late 70s and the 1980s, the Japanese economy was booming, so the price of Matsutake shot up uh, because of its rarity. And because of that, they began to look elsewhere. That's right. And that is about roughly the time as well that, uh, for example, in the automobile industry, that the Japanese began to outsource uh, the automobile industry to Southeast Asia, particularly to Korea. And you make that connection there as well. Um, this was a period of rising wealth in Japan. And a Japanese have imagined their island as without some of the key resources they need for economic development. They pioneered a kind of model which has taken over much of the world now in which uh, they would encourage supply chains, often very long chains, to distant places by uh, giving funding to suppliers, to encouraging suppliers, and then through trading companies, bringing those resources into Japan. So Matsutake was one of many, many kinds of resources that were coming into Japan at that period as they were developing this supply chain model that became so popular that it took off in many places around the world. One thing that you talk about the supply chain for the Matsutake mushrooms is, is uh, that for the people who were pickers, and you yes. talk about freedom. Could you go into that a bit more? Sure. The scene in this place took me by surprise that most of the forest here is owned by the federal government. It's national forest, yet you can get a permit to pick and camp there uh, and uh, do other kinds of things like hunting or hiking there also. But in the fall, uh, mushroom pickers come in large groups if the price is at all high, and two groups seemed particularly um, prevalent there. One had to do with uh, white pickers who often were veterans of the U.S.-Indochina wars, as well as former loggers and other rural people. And the other were refugees from Southeast Asia, from those same U.S.-Indochina wars, where in the 1980s, the U.S. had created the possibilities of immigration from, uh, from those wars, and people from Laos and Cambodia in particular came to Oregon to pick the mushrooms. Those groups all had commitments to something that they called freedom and that mushroom picking was helping them to achieve what they called freedom. Part of what took me by surprise is they meant very different things mm -hmm. by freedom and that even though they agreed on this common word, they didn't mean the same things by it. So that it ranged from, uh, there were pickers from a, a Southeast Asian group called the Mian, and uh, Mian families came up to pick mushrooms together, and they were particularly interested in reconstituting the village life that they had known back in Laos or in northern Thailand, where some moved out from Laos, that they saw the freedom of mobility and the freedom to see your neighbors, the freedom to not be in cramped urban apartments, that that was one kind of freedom. And yet it contrasted or came together 
with others who came there, for example, freedom meaning anti-communism, that the continuing struggle that some of the refugees felt to um, fight against communism in all its forms, that some of them saw that, while others saw, especially Cambodian refugees, were likely to have disabilities that came from their involvement in the civil wars in Cambodia. And for them, freedom often meant just the ability to make a living despite your disabilities, to get out there and make an independent living. So these many different meanings of freedom came together. And these were quite marginalized groups Yes, as that's well. right. That's now, right. why is that important to understand this in understanding supply chains and supply chains in more conventional mm-hmm. products like cars or cell phones and that mm-hmm. kind of thing? What, what does this tell us? I think... The most conventional way to understand supply chains is that the only thing that matters is price from one part of the chain to another. But in fact, there's a great deal of negotiation of something you might call value that means much more than price, which is why is anyone doing this work? What are they getting out of it? Both the money that they might get, but other things that they might get. And that The supply chain model has depended on mobilizing labor force for reasons other than wages, that in many cases, people's wages in supply chains are very low. Mm -hmm. So supply chains mobilize people through ethnicity, through religion, through all kinds of factors that are beyond how much they're going to pay them. And it's one of the ways that supply chains have been different than the kind of corporate formal labor contracts that in the 20th century many of us imagined as the way that the economy was properly organized, that these supply chains instead draw people who perhaps are unable to work in other ways but create possibilities to work that may have some kind of local meaning, as they did to these mushroom pickers, that brings them into the workforce. On the one hand, you could argue that this is a form of super exploitation in which people are going along with their own poor payment. On the other hand, there are also ways that people are drawn in to economic pursuits because of things that matter to them. Consequences of supply chains is the problem of responsibility of employers because you're outsourcing it all. By understanding a little bit better how workers get involved in these supply chains, what kind of conclusion can we draw about responsibility, corporate responsibility? Corporations in many cases have abrogated their responsibilities. And I do think that's something that citizens around the world should be concerned about. Indeed, even as the mushroom pickers were doing something that was quite wonderful for them, in most cases, it's the ability of employers to lose responsibility, uh, for example, to hire people who are unable to get jobs, perhaps because they're women, and they play on those disabilities to bring people into the workforce. So rather than celebrating the lack of responsibility that's really a characteristic of employment in our time, I think uh, we should be paying attention to the injustice of just this kind of system um, as we go forward and figure out how to, you know, what kind of world we want to live in. Mm -hmm. 
The subtitle of your book is On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. What is this possibility? As I learned about the economy of the matsutake mushroom, I also learned about the life world of the mushroom itself, that everyone I spoke to, whether they were a businessman, a picker, or a forest manager, wanted to tell me about the mushroom. And the stories about the mushroom took me by surprise because they were often stories about how this mushroom could survive in difficult times. That in Oregon, for example, this area had been a center of logging earlier in the 20th century. And then they had taken out all the valuable logs and there was nothing left except the kind of ruins of logging. So there was logging going on, but it was not very valuable. In fact, in many years, the mushrooms were more valuable than the trees. It was very lucky that mushrooms happen to grow up in this place. And so it doesn't always work out that way. But the reason it's so important for us to think about is because we've created a world with the ruins of so many different industrial enterprises all around us. So on the one hand, we're going to have to think about what kinds of livelihoods we might be able to gain. And on the other, it's a reason to really respect those kinds of living things that are capable of growing up in those ruins to figure out ways that we can encourage uh, the regrowth of living things even where uh, destruction has happened in the past. I think my last question is this, is about your idea of plantations versus peasant woodlands or the latent commons as a possible model for economic activity, but also salvaging um, this environment that we have that's going through climate change? Well, maybe the place to work on answering that question is as ways of thinking that uh, part of the reason that I like to contrast the plantation and the mushroom forest is because too much of our thinking assumes that the natural world and the social world are in a grid and that we start from a rationalized arrangement of people and resources. And then we think forward with that. But so many situations in our world are not like that. In fact, the liveliest, like the Matsutake forest, these uh, forests that have survived human disturbance and have so much growing in them. And so the reason for the contrast is uh, so that we might begin to perhaps value these less cleanly organized kinds of social arrangements, including non-human social arrangements, rather than just those that seem lined up for our use. That are completely rational, scalable models of salvage or production. And the latent commons uh, perhaps is also a method of thinking forward from where we are given the problems that we have in the world, which are that we need to figure out a set of collaborators, allies, uh, friends who are not humans as well as humans, that we too often imagined ourselves as humans as masters of the natural world that crops would be our friends when we controlled them completely. And it's turned out not to work out that way. The more we try to control them, the more 
harmful pests and pathogens come to haunt us. So to instead make common cause with some of the less uh, cleanly arrayed kinds of non-humans that are capable of going forward with us in this disturbed world, like Matsutake and Matsutake Forest, that those are the ones that we need to cultivate as our friends in some way. And the latent commons is just the openness to look for human and non-human allies who could help us keep at least some parts of our world livable for humans and our companion species. Thank you for talking to me, Anna. Thank you. And thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. Anna Tsing's book is The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.